Hello friends, it's Alfie Banga Banga. The date is Thursday the 13th of August. My name is Alex Ohili. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil, as per usual. This podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK. George today is not with us. Uh, Phil, though, is. Uh, today what we're talking about is, well, let's put it this way. Cast your mind back to the very, very beginning of this year, of 2020. Something was trending on Twitter. It was World War Three, and that was because Qasem Soleimani... Um, who was uh, part of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. Um, he was actually specifically the head of the Quds Force, was assassinated. Assassinated by the US uh, when Soleimani was in Baghdad. Uh, and that led to a lot of fear that a world war was going to break out. And that is what we're going to be talking about today to the author of a really brilliant book on Soleimani and actually looking more broadly at Iran's uh, history, the history of uh, the Islamic Republic. Uh, that's Arash Azizi, who we're going to be calling up in just a minute. Uh, he's been on before back in January 2018, talking about protests in Iran, and it'll be great to be able to speak to him once again. Yeah, so uh, it's great to have Arash back on, um, not least because last time we spoke to him, um, things look genuinely shaky. Um, in Iran, and it was great to have somebody who had such detailed knowledge of the dynamics of popular revolt in Iran, and also um, uh, could tell us kind of very specifically about what was going on. Um, but I'm, I mean, I'm particularly curious now to talk to Rush because um, I think the the life of Soleimani, kind of as a senior military figure within the Iranian regime, who's been um, instrumental to uh, defending the interests of the Islamic Republic throughout the throughout the Middle East. His life effectively embodies um, the uh, his life and career embodied effectively the uh, life of the Islamic Republic itself. His career, his uh, military um, successes, um, and also his involvement in all the various conflicts of the region, um, which we're going to talk about, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, um, mean that this, that story, that story of all those conflicts can be told through his career and through his biography, effectively. So I'm very curious to um, to talk to Arash. Yeah. Um, and also, I suppose, uh, I guess, there's also, I mean, uh, some of the broader theme, I guess, which um, hopefully we'll be able to talk about is the... Um, uh, and which comes through as well in the book itself is the uh, decline of, uh, well, the rise of sectarianism in the Middle East. And that's part of the larger story of the decline of um, yeah. of larger kind of greater political identities, um, of nationalism, obviously, of kind of uh, projects of national modernization, the descent into civil strife and sectarianism, um, but even the the even the kind of the degra- the degradation of the universalism of the Iranian Revolution. So, what was already a kind of uh, a warped form of universalism embodied in the Islamic Revolution degrades further as you'd expect, in fact, into um, uh, sectarianism that we've seen in Iraq and Syria. And that also is, um, as, we'll, as, um, as we'll see, I guess, when we talk to Arash, that also is the story of Soleimani's life and um, the uh, conflicts in which he's meddled throughout the region. Yeah, absolutely. That's a fascinating thing that really comes out in the book about the way in which even, even the Iranian Revolution, uh, which was itself a you know a step away from socialist universalism uh, towards this new form of uh, new form of I guess Muslim particularism at least spoke for all Muslims and it degrades further into a defense of the Shia sect specifically uh, and that was something really fascinating to to learn from this book and um, I'm actually really eager to learn more from Arash as we speak to him so let's call him up.
just out of interest to rush i mean because huh? i don't i don't really have a feel for the um severity of the iranian regime but is that the kind of book that would prevent you from going back to iran i mean i've been prevented long ago but yeah it oh, would okay. have, <laughs> sorry <laughs> i would have had yeah no i mean you know i know I've, i haven't been back for um for 12 years and uh i had no idea i'm sorry to sound no, so course, ignorant yeah. no 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 of course not the sever it's the severity question is interesting though because it's very it's kind of a good game to play about you know who cannot go and of course it's not you know it's not known i mean there's not a list of but you know I mean, you can everyone can go you just can't you know you go to prison basically <laughs> Yeah. So my father tested that and he went to prison for some years. So just you know, not oh, that long yeah. ago. But the crazy thing is that, oh, it's normal for someone like me who is a political activist and all that to be banned. But now people who've done nothing are afraid of going. You know, it's like you've done a museum exhibition on like, you know, hijab and you're worried to go back. Because, they, I mean, especially if you're a dual citizen, because they now do hostage taking, basically. I mean, they yeah. arrest people in order to get things from the government. So... Yeah, you know, not a lot of people can go. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, you said it's been what twelve years since you've been back. That's uh, that's, that's a long right, time. Yeah. I guess you've got like family there, though. Yeah, all my family is there. All right. my family is there, yeah. and uh, yeah. No, that's been... tough, man. Yeah, it's crazy. It's uh, you know, I never thought it would be twelve years when I left. In uh, it's actually it was August two thousand eight, so it's like the anniversary as well. I never thought it would be twelve. You know, I would never would have thought, but I've never would have thought the regime would also last this long. So we'll yeah, well, I mean, I think we wanted to start there, and actually, maybe we should just we should just get started. Um, Let's do it. I'm in. Right, so we're here with Arash Azizi. Um, if you've just been hearing that previous bit, uh, now is the actual real beginning of the <laughs> of the interview. Uh, Arash Azizi, a PhD candidate at NYU and the author of the forthcoming Shadow Commander, Soleimani, US and Iran's Global Ambition, which will be out in November uh, by One World and uh, it's also being distributed by Simon & Schuster in the US. Uh, so actually, uh, this is the second time Arash is on. Uh, Arash was on uh, way back in, I guess, the early days of the podcast in January 2018, where we were talking about uh, big protests in Iran. So maybe that's a good place actually to start. Um, what's what's happened in Iran since uh, January 2018? I mean, you were just saying you never thought the regime would last that long. Uh, what about in the intervening, um, what is that, two and a half years? Uh, thank you, Alex. It's great to be back. I've uh, become a fan of your podcast ever since, and uh, I've listened to, to a lot of... We love to uh, listen to a lot of the episodes. I especially love the recent episode on, on Singapore, which, uh, which I thought was fascinating. Um, so it's been two years and a half, as you mentioned. What has happened in Iran since is that we've had another wave of economic protests. And these protests are very spontaneous. They are in provincial places all over Iran. So they're distinguished from a politically centralized movement to a sort of economic-based riots almost out of desperation type, basically, that type of political action. And this is because they, so Donald Trump's policy of maximum pressure on Iran, as you know, Donald Trump started his presidency in 2017 by, uh, you know, by changing the policy on Iran. Eventually, he left the Iran deal, which had been negotiated by Obama and other world leaders really run prior to that. 
So he he sharply changed the direction of U.S. policy toward Iran and started putting a lot of pressure on Iran, a policy that he calls maximum pressure. They are by far the largest sanctions effort any country has put on any country in history. And uh, they really have been successful in the sense of devastating the, the Iranian economy. They, they haven't been successful in the, their declared goal of bringing Iran to the negotiation table. So basically, if I want to tell you what has changed since, um, since January 2018, in a nutshell, is that Iran is ever more isolated. Um, it is ever more embattled. Um, it is ever more in economic ruins. The middle classes have been the process of destruction or popularization of the middle class that has been going on for the last decade or so and had been sort of reversed a little under Rouhani and in the prospects of Iran deal have now has now intensified. Um, and the corona was, uh, which hit, hit Iran hard and early, was just a sort of cream on the top. Um, yeah. Iran, in many ways, I can say, is in the worst shape it's been in the last 100 years, is it? Since the First World War, it has never been in such mm. dire straits, I think, um, you know, with all the qualifications that one could make with such a sweeping claim, I think it's, it's fair to say. Well, I mean, given the, you know, the external pressure of the sanctions, um, its own economic difficulties, uh, and now the pandemic, which, you know, the, the rates continue pretty high. Um, what, uh, how do you see the regime kind of being able to react to this? And I mean, I know that you're not in Iran and, you know, you haven't been there in a long while, but, you know, when you hear from family and whatever, I mean, what, do you get a sense of what the mood is? I mean, is it, um, is it purely downbeat or is there kind of still a, a rebellious spark there? Um, you know, I mean, do you see kind of the sort of protest reemerging? It's definitely downbeat in a sense that, so, you know, the, what I would usually say is that revolutions or positive sort of change doesn't usually come from sort of desperation and the, and the downbeat sense, right? It comes from, like in 2009, mm-hmm. it comes from when people want to achieve some change, they hit some obstacle. But there's also a limit to this analysis, right? There is a point at which, I mean, if you drive the people to utter desperation, they have nothing to lose. They'll do anything, that sort of action. But to answer your question, no, the mood is absolutely downbeat. I mean, it's very hard to be hopeful about Iran today because, you know, you know what exactly is there to look for? I mean, economically, as I said, you have ruin. A lot of people have left. You know, there's a drain of Iran, um, you know, Millions of people, anybody who can leave sort of leaves almost, right? So countries like Armenia, Georgia, Turkey, and sorry, Turkey, um, uh, I mean, you know, these countries are full of Iranians. Mm. If you think about a country like Armenia, it's actually an interesting, you know, let me give you one interesting example. If you go to these refugee boats and refugee camps and see where these people come from, right? It's, it's three cases. They're either from impoverished, poor, sort of fourth world countries, right? Countries with a very low GDP per capita, uh, you know, like some countries in sub-Saharan Africa, or it's countries that have active civil wars. And the third category is Iran. Iran is the only country with a relatively high GDP per capita. I mean, it's gone down, but it's still Iran, you know, it, it's not a, it has not been a um, fourth world country, if you use this term. It has not been a country... Um, you know, with a very low GDP per capita or very low level of development. Mm. And it is, of course, does not have an armed conflict of any sorts. And yet, millions of people um, have left it and are living in increasing numbers. So the mood is definitely downbeat. Um, now, if you talk about the domestic politics of Iran very briefly, the situation is that Ayatollah Khamenei, the leader who is now 81-year-old, 
um, has usually played the game. The, the reason that his reign has not always been downbeat and has often been hopeful for people in certain periods is that he balances between different factions of the regime and the history of the Islamic Republic is a very fascinating history precisely because it's never been a monochromatic history, right? It has not been a simple history of repression. It has been history of trying different things of different elite functions um, standing for opening up. But at the current conjuncture, the president is one of the most hated men in Iran, I would say, the president that was elected on a pro-reform um, sort of basis um, because he has failed to deliver on any of his counts, right? The main thing was the Iran deal that on which he failed. You know, he, he also, even though he confronted Khamenei early on in his first term, he has really not been able to do much of that. And he's, so the next year is presidential elections. He's most likely to be replaced by, um, by a new conservative, neoconservative, actually, if I may uh, alter um, the term. What, how, what would that look like? Uh, I mean, what does that mean, I guess, in the Iranian context? So that's the big question. Khamenei has been speaking of what he calls the second step of the revolution or second phase, I guess, of the revolution, which has, as you know, happened in 79. So we're entering its fifth decade. Um, we are in its fifth decade. Um, now, he, Khamenei speaks of what he calls devout and devout and young revolutionaries as the type of people he wants in charge. And the parliament now um, is essentially formed of, uh, conformed of a lot of forces that look like this, devout and young revolutionaries, which I'll explain what it means in, in a second. I should quickly say that the parliament, of course, took this shape because the vetting bodies in charge of deciding who can run severely limited and they threw out candidacies of everybody else, basically, so that it wasn't a real election in any sense, right? In any sense. Um, and I'm, you know, I've written about this for those who are interested. But in terms of the what does this young and devout revolutionary means, basically, these are people committed to the leadership of Ayatollah Khamenei and from the ranks of the IRGC or linked to it, IRGC or the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps is, of course, a massive paramilitia, uh, really a military and economic complex behemoths that control something like 30-40% of the Iranian economy, and its job is to buttress the Islamic Republic and Ayatollah Khamenei's rule. Um, so that this that face of neoconservatism are people linked to the IRGC and committed to the leadership of Khamenei um, and preservation of regime. Um, but what that actually means uh, in practical terms, in terms of the splits between them, the contradiction between these Islamist ideals and the economic ruin and the massive corruption that exists in them, um, and the question of what happens when Khamenei dies, which is not that far off in the future because he's a very old man and, and a sick man. Um, you know, these are, these are some of the questions that uh, you know, Iran watchers are going to be talking about and debating in the, in the next few years. No, I mean, well, that's very interesting um, in terms of hearing about the ways in which the regime is trying to renew itself. Um, and I think we'll probably come to that and also, you know, go through uh, the Islamic Republic's history, as you've told it through the history and then the biography of Soleimani as well. So um, mm. as we as we move towards actually discussing that, that stuff, I actually wanted to ask you first, uh, what motivated you to write this book? Because I obviously, um, you know, the assassination was at the very beginning of the year. Did you have any plans to write such a thing before he was assassinated or, or did it come after oh, that? No, absolutely. No, I mean, I was already working on this book project. The basic story is 
so of all what, what has always fascinated me is the story of Iran's relationship with its neighbors. Um, if I want to cast a sort of glance over my thinking on this, is that it starts from a political project of me lamenting the fact that, you know, a hundred years ago, a little more than in the beginning of the 20th century, Iran and the entire Arab world were part of two countries, Iran and the Ottoman Empire, that had a lot of links together. And this region was really a vibrant sort of region in many sense that was very interconnected. Now, ever since then, we have had anything but, of course, right? Um, with all sorts, which, you know, one could talk about. So I've always been fascinated in the question of how does Iran relate to its Arab neighbors? That's what my doctoral work is on. Um, and uh, that's what I've written about. That's what I've cared about. Now, I usually like to think of the positive, you know, more positive relations like literary relations and work to speed up these relations or historical relations on the left. But the reality is, whether we like it or not, the most, you know, the most uh, obvious form of these relations today are those that uh, Qasem Soleimani built, a man who was appointed as the head of, in 1998, he was appointed as the head of Iran's IRGC's external operations, and he went on to build a transnational army um, in Arab countries, Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan and, and beyond, um, and really put the Iranian state at the center of this transnational network of uh, Shia, although not just Shia um, fighters. So I have always had an interest in him, and a publisher asked me about possibly writing a book a couple of years ago, but I was working sort of a slowly on it, you know, taking, you know how it is, right, taking notes, doing research, until he, he got assassinated in, on January 3rd earlier this year. And suddenly you and had your hook. <laughs> I had my hook. I mean, the publisher was interested before, and I was, I mean, I, I was thinking of writing this book in the next few years. There's always, there's always the question of provisionality of writing a biography of someone who is still very much alive at the height of his career, actually, right? So, uh, you know, I was, I was working like that. But when he was killed, it made it a much more, you know, then I was like, this is my chance and my time now to tell the story. And, uh, it, you know, the publisher asked me to write it, and I went on and wrote it. To be honest, COVID helped a little bit because I couldn't do anything else. So <laughs> I was able to uh, finish the book. But I had done much of the research and had even written a little bit uh, before, before he was assassinated. And I mean, as to Soleimani himself, I wonder, I, I don't know how to put this exactly. I don't want to say that you admired or even you know, put the suggestion out there that you admired him. But I mean, did you, was he as a figure, as a political figure, as a military figure, uh, did he, did you find him in some way captivating or, or was it just merely, no, this guy's important and, and therefore he needs to be written about? This is a very uh, good question. Um, it's clear to me that, you know, if you look at sort of good guys and bad guys, he's obviously a bad guy for me. I mean, I am an opponent of the Islamic regime in Iran and of the IRGC and of the man that Soleimani really considered himself loyal to more than anybody else, Ayatollah Khamenei. So clearly, you know, um, this is not a sympathetic biography, right? And I wonder if, I mean, I'm sure there will be many, there are many at attempts in Iran right now at, at hagiography. Um, Soleimani did have a lot of fans beyond the base of the Islamic Republic, and we can talk about that. Um, but so, so that's sort of my stance on Soleimani. You know, that's like cards on the table, first of all. But I'll say a couple more things. One is that he definitely was a fascinating figure. So there is this debate, actually. The, the debate goes something like this. Like, did it, you know, in one version of the extreme of the story, Soleimani didn't really matter. Western media likes personality-driven stories. So they really pumped him up to be this person. He went on Newsweek's mm -hmm. cover, you know, New Yorker, Dexter Filkins wrote his piece on him and he really, really become big. But really, he's just a functionary um, 
in the regime who headed this thing. It could be anybody else. Uh, and the other extreme of this is that he did everything and all that. But I mean, I'm much more closer to the latter version. I, I think he was very special. Uh, he was very special because it's not, it's not a it's not just a bureaucratic position, right? To be able to build together an internationalist coalition, a military coalition of putting very different people from very different backgrounds working together toward a common goal, um, overcoming the Shia Sunni divide in some ways, even because he worked with Hamas in Palestine, and definitely working overcoming the Iranian Arab divide. So I think he was very special, which brings us to the other debate about him. How important it is to assassinate him, right? Again, the you know, early on the debate polarized that oh, you kill him, he's replaced by someone else, nothing will change. Um, and of course, people have their own political stakes on this on all sides in this claim, right? But if you look at it from a analytical point of view, I think his demise has he's basically is irreplaceable. He's irreplaceable, and you can see now there are other you know other factors that have led to the demise of the Quds force since. Soleimani is killing in January. But I think over the long run, you find out that in many ways, he is irreplaceable. You're not going to have another person who was able to do what he did so, uh, so successfully. So um, these, are some of the, yeah, these are some of the initial thoughts on, on, on Soleimani. No, that, that's great. Um, I also, I mean, I should note uh, for listeners' sake that your book does a really great job of interweaving his Soleimani's personal and political biography with the history of Iran. And I think we're going to try to, in the next, uh, o- over the next uh, hour or so, try to weave those together as we go through it. Um, but before we do that, we should probably actually start with, uh, well, start more or less where you start in the book, which is Soleimani's personal biography. Because I think as most people will know, I think, who read any sort of profile of, of his, even if it was after the assassination, uh, that this is a guy who didn't come from the traditional elite. Um, he, you know, came from a, a small town in the provinces, uh, and suddenly gets, you know, over the course of his career becomes catapulted into this, uh, into this very important figure, uh, in Iran and in the region. So maybe just tell us a little bit about where he came from. He came from the uh, province of Kerman, that I should also note, that's where my mother's family is from. So, uh, you know, I had a lot of links and I talked to a lot of Kermanis for whom, you know, um, you know if you go to Gori in Georgia, um, where Stalin is from, I mean, you know, they might like, like or hate Stalin, but they all care about him because mm. he's the local boy who made it. In many sense, Soleimani for the, um, for the particular region he was from in the Kerman province is like that. And even for the Kerman as a whole, I guess, um, you know, important figure on a world scale from there. So they all they all have some interest in him, and a lot of his stories, some some of which are surely made up, right? All of a sudden, someone is famous, everybody remembers being like buddies with him in high school. But um, yeah, so he came from a, a little village called Qanat Molk, uh, in, it's in the Kerman province, as I said, toward the south of Iran. It's close to the Persian Gulf, and it has a very tribal background. Almost everybody in this village is whose last name is Soleimani, for example. I mean, a couple of hundred. Uh, sort of families live there, not many, and um, this these are this part of the province is full of nomadic tribes. Although this city is not nomadic, it, it exists in many places in the world where you have uh, locals whose really uh, existence is based on this resettled tribes, right? Resettled nomadic tribes who at some point in history have been resettled. In Iran, that's early 20th century. Um, so he came from there. It was a, a definitely a marginal place. It's even marginal to Kerman province, let alone to Iran as a whole. 
and uh, he came from very humble background. He worked construction jobs in his youth. He moved to the city of Kerman, the, the, pro the provincial center, which was a, still a pretty backwatery, you know, old caravan desert town. It wasn't really one of the top five cities or even top ten cities in, in Iran at the time. And um, he, as I said, worked construction jobs there in, in that city. And uh, he worked in a hotel and he did a lot of uh, bodybuilding and karate and boxing. And this was really his youth. In no way was, unlike what the some biographies later try to claim, there's no evidence that in any way he was really involved in the revolutionary movement against the Shah in any serious way. Um, he attended mosques, you know, he, which had become a center of opposition activity, and he had some sympathy. I'm sure we'll never really know the exact details. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this was, this was Soleimani as a young man. In, in like contemporary meme terms, I guess he was a bit of a chad, right? I mean, he like he went to the gym. And... <laughs> Definitely. No, that's actually right accurate. You know, that he was a gym rat. So that, that's very accurate. Yeah. He spent a lot of time in the gym, but this is actually very important because he, you know, I'll just tell you this. The first time, it's in the book as you, as, you, as you see, the first time he applied to join the IRGC, which was just being built after the revolution, he was rejected for precisely this reason because he looked like a, I mean, he didn't look like a good Muslim boy or someone who's gonna, you know, build up their, you know, he didn't have the revolutionary credentials, basically. I mean, the guy who, Rejected him. We know him because he's an MP now, and you know we know him through this. But he's said this story many times that we saw someone coming in with a T-shirt and you know with funny hair, and he didn't look like uh, yeah he. But it is in fact this his physical ability, his very impressive physical ability that built his career, as you can talk about. Because early on, uh, he was always very physically impressive. He had done karate, as I said, and he had done traditional Persian athletics. So it's an interesting case of. You know, I'm not, you know, you you got to get some some crazy academics yeah. to make this into some sort of the role of muscle in history or whatever. But uh, <laughs> definitely a physical explanation yeah. to his right. But he's not just a grunt, right? I mean, I guess that's the important thing. He's a, he's obviously intelligent, was intelligent, so. Um, well, definitely, yeah. Def I mean, you know, uh, yeah, definitely. What have you got against grunts, Alex? <laughs> no, no, just, just, you know, just characterize. Are you, are you not a grunt? You think yourself a superior kind of person, huh? <laughs> Do I lift, bro. I, you know. Um. Uh, in mean terms, Alex is definitely the Chad of the podcast. <laughs> okay, now that, now that we're doing this, now that I'm doing this joke, I have to say, it's, I was, I was doing some gym recently, and I thought to myself. You know, if I had done more of this in my teenagers, this would have been as important to being a sort of Marxist activist as learning about you know, divides in the Kurdish socialists. <laughs> <four hours>. <laughs> <laughs> right. Maybe young activists out there, you know, hit the gym. It's, uh, it's good to be able to run away from the cops or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So turning, um, uh, I guess, turning to the formative experience of the Iran-Iraq war, could you tell us how... Um, how that affected Soleimani, how it affected the trajectory of his career, and um, how old was he, in fact, when the Shah was overthrown and when the war with Iraq broke out? Um, so he was born in March 21st, 1956, according to his gravestone, which is not what you'll find anywhere else, but uh, you know, I'll let that settle so you, you, know, you can do the math. It's, he was, was about 23 when the revolution broke out and 24 when the war broke out. Um, so here's the story. The Iranian revolution breaks out. You have a new 
revolution, you have new political mobilization. In my version of this story, I think what really matters is, and a lot of my parents come from outside Tehran and you know, most of my family. So I think there is a very important element to this provincial story. I, people from outside provinces, when grand political events happen, this is their ticket to life, right? This is their ticket to be able to give some meaning to their life um, in a way that if you stay in your you know, backwater town, wherever, um, would never happen. So the story of Soleimani is very much for me linked to this. Um, he has a, he's working at a water organization. He's like a lowly civil servant, basically, when the revolution breaks out. And he wants to, you know, this world important event of revolution has happened and he wants to play a role. So he joins the IRGC at some point. I mean, he gets over the initial uh, reje rejection. And the other important event that happens a year after the revolution is that Iran starts a war with Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Well, Saddam Hussein attacks Iran, to be clear. Saddam Hussein's Iraq attacks Iran, and a war that was going to last for eight years uh, begins. Now, this war, I'll say two quick things about it in relation to Soleimani. First of all, it becomes, again, as I said, his ticket to playing an important role. He joins the IRGC, and he, he, his initial job is guarding the Kerman airport, which no one cares about, but he's able to get to the front at some point. That's the southwestern Iran, the province of Khuzestan, and the border with Iraq. And this is his his uh, this is his life, right? From the moment from the 1980, he joins the IRGC to the day he died. He was in the IRGC. And he became he became a soldier for life. Um, and the military career, of course, is built throughout the war with, with Iraq. It's also important because in this eight years of war, the Islamic Republic is really able to build for itself a cadre. It is able to use the fact that Iranians are patriotic people uh, who want to defend their country, or I guess you know people everywhere want to defend, defend their countries. They are able to use that and they, to recruit hundreds of thousands of people to the front, millions in different ways, and they use that to build up a base for themselves and also a a, a ideology, if you will, that was very thin before that. Um, on the front, you're able to form an ideology of heroism, of martyrdom, um, and Soleimani is part of that story. He's one of those. He he becomes a division commander not not too late in the in the early 80s, 1982 or three, I believe, um, and he becomes you know one of the important commanders of the war. And uh, th these people are going to play an important role in the history of Iran to this day because they have had this formative experience in the, in the, in the war with Iraq. Uh, you said at the beginning, I mean, how, you know, Iran's history isn't, uh, you know, even as the Islamic Republic isn't kind of monochromatic and um, there's lots of internal divisions and so on. Um, and we always like to emphasize that when we uh, discuss countries that maybe we're, you know, we or our listeners aren't necessarily that familiar with to really try to draw out those internal conflicts. So with regard to Soleimani, was there any indication in those early years um whether he had any strong political commitments, I mean, there's obviously a loyalty uh, to to the regime, but uh, was there any kind of inclination towards one side or the other? Uh, any indication at that time? Excellent question. So, Soleimani's claim to the end of his life was that he he was a supranational. So he was a national figure. He was beyond these divisions. Um, that the main two divisions in Iran are called reformists and conservatives. In the last sort of 20 years or so, 25 years or so. Um, and he said he's above this too. Um, 
but really he was a devotee of Ayatollah Khamenei, which means in many sense he was on the conservative side in this sense. But here's, my, here's what I really think about Soleimani's politics. And I'm really, you know, these are all beginning of answers that I have to these questions. I'd, I'd love it to have a, you know, to debate this and talk about this with more people, especially for people who do not come from an Iran background, right? Because I think you, you get very rich answers when you have comparative and, you know, when you talk to people like yourselves who are studying many different countries. I think Soleimani is primarily a soldier. I think he's, and I've, I've read all his speeches, really, every speech that he has ever given, I've heard and listened to, I mean, those that are available in the public domain. I mean, um, I think this is a soldier who early on forms an identity that is rather simple, that he wants to defend the Islamic Republic, that he supports Ayatollah Khomeini, first the founding leader, and then Ayatollah Khamenei, and that he, the ethos of the IRGC is that you build, you build and defend the Islamist state um, against all its enemies, domestic and foreign. And so any difference or opinion that he would have had would be of a strategic sense, right, of how to do this, not better to do this. And I think there is a, I think there is a thing about some soldiers, people who have a military side, that really they don't want to get involved in too much political thinking. At least that's a running theory I have. I think even if you look at the Nazi Germany, there are ge people in the Wehrmacht, in the German army, whose main um, concerns are not really political. They have a diff they, this is not to say they're not political. It's to say that they have a very basic understanding of politics, that it's not very complex or complicated. You defend Khamenei in this sense. Hmm. You defend Khamenei, you defend... Uh, you defend this regime and then you defend the, you defend the policies that it has um, in the region. Indeed, it's, probably, in it's probably useful to not be um, too overly concerned and, and, and weighed down by, by doubts or concerns about political direction and so on because you can just then focus on, on strategy. If, if the aim is already clear, then... Uh, exactly. So, so that's, that's basically... It, it becomes, you know, this... It, it's interesting to think about this because, of course, this guy had a very political role in a sense. In the book, I revealed for the first time that he actually considered the presidential run. And, uh, and also, of course, he had an important role in liaisoning with Nasrallah, with, you know, with Hezbollah. And, and when you're involved in politics of so many countries, you have to have political views and, um, uh, and political relationship building with them. But I think my running theory, at least, and as I said, I'm not very sure about this, but my theory is that there is sort of a thin politics, if you will. The political level is very thin. Um, you know, you have some basic goals and some basic ideas that you're defending, but you're not, you know, you're not really a political thinker. So could you um, tell us, so before we get into a bit of how he, of him building the relationships that he had with, um, with kind of various uh, Shia movements around the region, could you maybe just tell us a little bit about um, uh, you know, the kind of uh, what major, the fronts he was involved in or the major battles of the of the Iran-Iraq war or um, and where he stood at the end of it and how, if there was any particular moments of the war itself that were so formative. I mean, is it, it's the, is it the single most important um, military conflict of his life? And how does it, how do you, how do you think it might have, um, changed his thinking, I suppose? And is it the thing, and, I guess also the other kind of follow on to that is how far is his experience typical 
of mm. the new elite that emerges um, that emerges to kind of uh, become the uh, Praetorian Guard of the Islamic Republic through the course of the war? So I don't think he actually military distinguished himself in the war. That's actually my theory, right? I don't think he really was that particularly militarily distinguished. He was just one of the sort of mid-level commanders. What he was distinguished in is that, so this, the, what happens is that he becomes the head of a group that becomes a division finally. It's first a brigade, then, then a, first a battalion, then a brigade, then a, then a division, which is sort of the largest thing you can have. And this division, like other divisions of the IRGC, are locally based. So his is based on Kerman province and also on two um, adjacent provinces that are actually, it's interesting because both of them are actually either Sunni majority or they have a lot of Sunnis in Iran, right? So that's Hormozgan on the, on the Persian Gulf Coast and Sistan and Baluchistan on the border with Afghanistan and Pakistan. So Soleimani becomes an important organizer because he's able to, he, from his tribal background, he's able to bring a lot of people and he has this impressive ability of organizing a lot of people and bringing them to this division. Now, as for the history of the war, the eight years of the war basically are a lot of back and forth at the end of which we go back to um, the status that basically borders don't change, right? Um, but the key moment is in 1982, when Iran has recovered all the territory that Iraq had. So Iraq attacks Iran. Iran does a bunch of counterattacks. And by 1982, Iran has taken back all of its own territory, almost all of its own territory, after the liberation of the city of Khorramshah, in which Soleimani was present, although he, he played a marginal role. Um, his, his sort of forces played a marginal role. Um, and after that, in 1982, Saddam actually offers um, Iran to join forces of Iran and fight against Israel, which had just invaded southern Lebanon in 1982. In 1982, under Prime Minister Menachem Begin, Israel has invaded southern Lebanon. Iran says no to this. So this is the key moment in Soleimani's life because Iran does two things in 1982. First, it says no to Saddam's offer of joining forces against Israel and it continues its war with Iraq. Disastrously. Many forces in Iran in 82 said we should finish the war with Iraq now. We fought, we've spent so much money and so much human resources, and we've gotten back all of our territory. Saddam is ready for a ceasefire. But no, Khomeini is adamant that Iran has to go all the way to Baghdad and overthrow Saddam and liberate the Shia cities like Karbala and Najaf in Iraq. And uh, and that's that's one decision that is important for Soleimani's life because he's going to fight on the front for longer. And the other decision is that Iran starts building up a force that becomes Hezbollah in Lebanon. It basically Iran tries starts a vigorous international um, intervention by building up a, a new force in Lebanon that is later on going to, of course, become an important horn in the side of Israel. But during the war itself, um, you know, I spent hours going through all the battles of the war and I, I tried to put them in a book as in a non-boring way as possible because it's eight years of war of going back and forth. But the basic story is Iran fails to ever... So the city of Basra, which is a port in southern Iraq, and from Iranian territory, you can see its lights. You know, I've, I've done this. You can stand in Iran and watch the lights of Basra. And Iran has ne is never able to capture that. So the basic story is that Iran miserably failed to the, of the goals that it commits to in 1982, which is bringing down Saddam and capturing some in Iraqi territory and expanding this Islamist revolution. So is, the, is, that, is that experience of defeat, 
Is that important for Sole so, um, for Soleimani and for the Iranian, the new Islamist Iranian elite at large? Absolutely, absolutely. So they, the uh, I would say it's not a defeat in the war because I mean they 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 do get back all the Iranian territory, um, and the UN does accept the, um, the the fact that Iraq has started the war. But here's what happens. Yeah, in 1988, Khomeini accepts the ceasefire that had been offered by the United Nations Security Council the year before. And he says doing this was like drinking a chalice of poison. And Khomeini, in the last year of his life, lives a very embittered life. He basically never really sees anyone anymore. He does crazy things like issuing a fatwa against Salman Rushdie that really rattles the world, right? Um, so the story is that these generals, these men like Soleimani, believe they've been really betrayed by politicians and diplomats in the U of you know Iranian diplomats in the UN who have forced Imam Khomeini to accept um, this ceasefire and bring shame onto them by bringing them back from the front. Um, this is a very familiar theme, of course, right? It's, it's not a stab. It's a stab, myth of the stab in the back, I guess, for... Exactly. The, uh, sorry, you were saying, yeah. Yeah, well, just that. It's a, so there, is a, there is a stab in the back myth for um, the Iranian military elite as well, then. Exactly, which is a very classical, you know, soldiers have this thing, right? Because they're, they're sort of everywhere in the world, this is the case, right? You definitely have it with Vietnam and the US. Soldiers have this idea that, well, we are the ones fighting on the front, you know, these politicians are in the center, what do they know? And, um, and whenever you have a bad end like this, that you, know, you don't reach the military results that you have, there is this stab in the back meat. So this is really, if a few other things also happen that shape form to these politics of revenge, if you will, of, of these military commanders. At the end of 1988, Soleimani, Ghalibov, other figures that I talk about in the book, uh, Ghalibov is now the Speaker of Parliament in Iran. He was elected a couple months ago. These people form a brand of revenge or revanchist politics, which is really this. Um, it's, it's about, oh, in the Iraq war, we were, we were betrayed, we couldn't reach our goals, and then after the war finishes in 1988, Iran starts a phase of what you can call neoliberalism and economic reopening and the first decade of re the revolutionary decade from 1979 to 89 finishes. Iran starts to be a very different place in many ways. Mm. And these guys really see a betrayal of their ideas in multiple ways because I'll just say it's very quickly. I'll just say very, treating very quickly. So in the war they've been defeated, the economic... Iranian revolution was supposed to be about equality, was about to be about simple living, about the spirituality. Now, what do you have? You have, you know, expensive cars running down the streets. You have everybody sending their kids to study in the West. You have, so there's a huge betrayal of this. Um, and that religiosity also, you know, you it's, it's basically gone. A lot of people are embittered. Um, they're not so much into um, all the promises of the revolution. They start making fun of them. So these guys really have a chip on their shoulder, um, of you know, which is very important ever since 1989 to now. Their brand of politics becomes, well, we need to defend, um, we need to defend these lost ideals. And as anyone, any good politician would know, this is a great base for organizing politics because you have men with guns and resources who have a chip on their shoulder. Um, and those who are smart enough in the next period in Iran, which is Ayatollah Khamenei mainly, know how to use this space to their advantage. That's great and takes us right up to uh, where I wanted to go next, 
which is obviously, you know, the defeat against Iraq is uh, very impactful uh, within the consciousness of Soleimani, uh, his associates and, and the regime as a whole. But then something really big happens shortly after that, which is, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War. Um, so this question here is, I guess, really on brand for this podcast. But what is what happens to Iran at the end of history? Uh, you've already mentioned that there's a turn towards neoliberalism. Um, I think you mentioned in the book that the left wing of Islamism becomes marginalized. Does this have an impact on the revolutionary nature of the regime? And I think this is something it, it might be even worth highlighting the fact that I, we forget, maybe I forget, I, I think this is my impression that people forget uh, about Iran as a revolutionary regime, even at one point in time. Um, you know, that that uh, that whole history kind of has been forgotten. Um, and, and also, you know, not not just revolutionary in a, in a social, in a socialist sense, obviously, but uh, as you put it, a kind of strange platypus type of regime that emerges there. But uh, I mean, yeah, the, the question basically is what happens to the revolutionary nature of the regime uh, as of in, in the 90s? So that's an excellent question. In and I, I really like the fact that you bring Cold War into it because, uh, you know, I really think Cold War matters here. Disclaimer, I'm a Cold War scholar, so I, I like to make everything about the Cold War. But really, I do believe Cold War is important here. In 1989, after the death of Ayatollah Khomeini, already you see some changes. Ervan Abrahamian, the great Iranian historian, calls this a thermidor of the Iranian Revolution, naming it after a term referring to the French Revolution, of course. What you have is an initial pact between uh, Rafsanjani, known as a very pragmatic uh, type guy who had led much of the war effort, he becomes the parliamentary speaker, and Ayatollah Khomeini replaces Khomeini as the supreme leader. So these two guys between them have a pact of opening up Iranian economy, really. A pact that really becomes much more meaningful after the historic uh, fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, which of course is a world historic event. It changes a lot of things. Um, it is, for the Iranians, it, is, it has two significance, I believe. First, it is seen that one of the rivals is gone because this is, this is the thing that a lot of people don't know. But Islamism has always had communism as its main rival. Because if you want to, communism has historically been always much more stronger uh, in, in the Middle East, right, than, than Islamism. It's hard to believe this today, but historically, communism and socialism were much more stronger. They made more sense. They had more followers. Um, they had a strong international backing. They had more respectability. So this, imp this important rival has been given a, given a serious blow in 1991. And the other point, though, is that you have this age of neoliberalism really solidified, which is in the 80s. But in, I mean, I know this term is very, uh, you know, nebulous sometimes, neoliberalism. But what I'm basically talking about is that you have a situation in which a lot of people who were committed to old revolutionary ideas of transformation give them up in one way or the other, you know, from South Africa to Palestine, which is very important, and, and to others. And that you have a rise, a pros prospect uh, of a possibility of an international order um, that is in which the U.S. plays an important role and in which capitalism is very important. And these, these both affect the direction of the Iranian regime in the 1990s, yeah? So you have, you, what you effectively, what you start to have is under Khamenei and Rafsanjani, they start to have the opening up, the, opening up of the economy, 
and trying to figure out what this Islamist open economy will look like. And I said trying to figure out because it really changes as you go along and there are different opinions. Um, some say that Iran should become a South Korea, should democratize, should basically give up this Islamist experience. Uh, Rafsanjani says that Iran should be like China, that it should keep mm. up the it's uh, it should keep up the rule of the Communist Party like China did, who keep up basically a political repression while opening up uh, economically and and become a capitalist uh, Islamist country. Now, so what do we have ever since the intellectual political history of the Islamic Republic? It's trying to give different answers to these questions. What are we going to be? Are we capitalists? Are we socialists? What does it all mean? Um, it's an interesting point of religious politics in general and Islamist politics in general that you find out basically Islamist economy doesn't mean jack shit. You know, really, you have, <laughs> when you say Islamist economy, you have, to, you have to either be capitalist or be socialist. Ultimately, if I want to, if I think, you know, I know some, I'm sure some, you know, woke scholars in some university in Idaho or whatever would like to give a different answer <laughs> and try to figure out, oh, maybe what a deep meaning there is to these third world attempts of Islamic stuff. But really, these guys who actually did this, I really wish these people would talk to people who are actually in charge of this regime. They basically find out, look, we can talk about all we want, you know, Islamic economy or whatever, but really, you know, what's going to be the rate of unemployment? Are we going to have trade unions or not? You know, what, what are we going to do? Um, they really, that's what they, they, they end up they end up to the, coming to the conclusion that they have to have one of the economic blueprints. And the history of political and intellectual debates in Iran since then is the history of these different visions of, um, of what the future of Iran should be. The last sentence I'd say here is that a lot of them, a lot of them coming to the conclusion that this whole Islamist experiment was one big mistake, basically, that... You know, we can maybe keep, of course, the reference to Islam or nationality and dignity. Of course, there was some uh, good things to the revolution. But this whole uh, guardianship of the jurists and the Islamic Republic and all that was one big costly experience from whatever result, from whatever angle uh, you look at. So, I... <laughs> I mean, you've already mentioned, you know, obviously that, uh, you know, Islamism was a major rival to uh, the communists in in the Middle East, you know, still during the Cold War. And specifically, it was the Shia often, you know, not, not talking about Iran, but outside of Iran, throughout the Arab world, Shia are the minority in most countries, just a small majority in Iraq. And like many kind of ethnic minorities, they gravitated towards the communists. Um but after the after the end of the Cold War, they Shia around the region start to look to Iran instead. And Iran, I think you you kind of try to play with this sort of analogy that Iran takes the role of the Soviet Union in some way, um, and you have the you know the uh, the Ayatollah instead of uh, the the Soviet Big Brother to to look up to. So I wondered if you firstly could comment on that, and secondly, in relation to Iran specifically and. In the, the previous question that I asked about the revolutionary nature or otherwise of the regime of, of Iran trying to find its feet, what is its North Star during this period? I mean, does it have one? Is it anti-Zionism? Is that the main mission of the regime? Uh, or, or is it something else? Um, on, the, on, the, on the first question, um, so throughout, throughout the Cold War, the Shia when they are politically organized, they're often organized with the Communist Party. In fact, the term Shia Shiui, Shiui is Arabic for communist, is 
used as a derogatory term against them. Now, the main trends of the Arab policy at the time are pan-Arabism under Nasser, like Nasserism, um, which um, a lot of people associate more with Sunni majorities um, and some other forces. I, I wouldn't get into all of them now, but so there is this historic association between Shia and communism, especially in Iraq, where the Communist Party has a lot of uh, Shias in it, and in Lebanon, where again, Communist Party is, is, uh, has a lot of Shia fighters in, in all its ranks from leadership uh, down below and in, and in some other countries as well. Um, and yes, my claim is that after 1991, in a lot of way, Iran replaces the Soviet Union because it has a lot of module uh, similarities in some way because it offers a worldview, wh however small that it is. It offered, you know, what, what was so great about communism in the 20th century? It gave people a worldview, um, a comprehensive worldview that answered everything right and it was it was it was not a um it was it was not a sort of politics of pragmatism it was it was a worldview and ideology that answered everything um that showed the path to future gave a real meaning to people's lives around the world it was a universalist framework and also it was backed by a massive state um that meant resources and that meant um some legitimacy to your ideas right so this was the Soviet Union. Now, Iran offers all the same things. It offers an ideology. It offers a transnational universalist framework. It's very also optimistic uh, and sort of confident because it has come out of a revolution in 79 that really shocked the whole world. And it also has the resources. And it also helps that in a, you know, these are more grand theories, but in an age that identity comes to matter a lot, it matters that this is a Shia state, right? And and Shia can associate themselves with it. So it's not a basic sectarian story. It's the story of revolutionary ideology, um, you know, layered with, with sectarianism. And that's what I play with around the book. Um, and it shows itself in the career of people like Adel, Adel Abdul Mahdi, the last prime minister of Iraq, who was a leader of the Iraqi Communist Party and made a very easy transition to, um, to becoming a sort of Shia Islamist in support of Iran. And of course, I've even in the book, I even talk about like Carlos de Jackal, the famous Venezuelan yeah. sort of far left terrorist who, who became effectively, you know, known for his in, in, in Palestinian camps more than anything. He was known to be always drunk and on drugs and womanizing and things like that. And he makes a very easy transition to becoming a supporter of Islamist, uh, Islamist in Iran. Um, mm. Yeah. So, I mean, they, and then I, mean, I talk about the other examples in the book. I've met many of these people and they're interesting yeah, what, what's the what, what's the, what's the term again uh, that they use for Shia? Uh, Shia, Shia Shui, yeah. So that's, that's like the Middle Eastern. That's like the Middle Eastern version of Judeo Bolshevik, basically. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it used to be exactly. That's like, you know, I'd never thought about it in that way, but that's actually very accurate. In in Iraq, this was much more relevant because there were also a lot of Jews in the Communist Party uh, prior to the formation yeah. of Israel. Uh, you know, there was a lot of Jews in the Communist Party, and a lot of Shi and this is a this is actually implicit almost that Shias are working with the Jews. Um, and they're communists. But yeah, Shia Shui was a very common term. So one other aspect or one, I guess, another analogy that you sort of make between uh, Islamism as as practiced in Iran and uh, the previous history of of communism, especially Soviet communism, is the notion of internationalism. And so you talk about mm -hmm. Iran's Islamist internationalism. Uh, mm -hmm. When so. Firstly, could you tell us what that was and what its practices actually meant? I mean, you already mentioned uh, the role in setting up Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. Um, so maybe you could give us some other examples of how it practiced Islamist internationalism. And then secondly, how and when does Iran become more 
um, Shiaist, I guess, more explicitly uh, sectarian, I guess, in its defense of, of the Shia? Excellent question and difficult questions. <laughs> Each of this is really a book. Um, uh, so here's what I think. Iran's internationalism is that from the early on, this revolution has some internationalist pretensions and goals, right? That's why when they occupy the U.S. embassy in Iran, they invite the IRA from Ireland to send messages. They sort of send uh, messages to the Black Panther Party, and uh, you know they really want to say that they they care about the global um, global Islamic revolution. Now there are different Islamist visions, and in the chaos following the revolution, each of these each of these people have get access to resources and guns and money and tries to push out uh, their different visions, they come into conflict with a realities of a state, of course, very quickly. It's a very interesting point, right? It happened in the Soviet Union too, by the way, after the October Revolution. You know, the Bolsheviks wanted to say, okay, we have a state now, let's just go and, you know, bring down all the bad guys everywhere in the world. Very quickly, the Soviet Union finds out that if it wants to, um, if it wants to um, survive, it has to make accommodations real for a state. So it makes a trade deal with Britain in 1920 or 1921, trade deal with, with England. So Iran also has a similar similar story. One crazy guy early on, Mohammad Montazeri, is this young guy who some call the Trotsky of the Iranian revolution. He takes his global stuff very seriously. He's the acolyte of Gaddafi, who the leader of Libya at the time, who is also known to fund revolutionaries around the world. I list like some 15 or 20 groups from Armenian to, to Malta, um, to the, uh, Palestine, uh, to different groups that Gaddafi funds. And so Montazeri works with this and he wants Iran to immediately just become a base for this. And um, he's, he's killed early on uh, in an attack, but the, the unit he had in the IRGC continues um, with different adventurists' uh, work, if you will. Um, but much more, much more measured work, um, this leads to the second part of your question, is that so you have this sort of adventurous Islamist um, attempts at internationalism of helping anyone who you can, anyone who you think is on the side of the righteous um, in one way or the other. Um, this comes against the interests of the state. What you have a more slow work is that Iran starts to build uh, paramilitias, build or fund the existing paramilitias, build links with them and prop them up um, that end up becoming those of the more Shia nature. And they act, mm. and this is the dichotomy, and this is, what I, this is what I try to really say in the book, is that they, if you, the tragic outcome is that internationalism really becomes a story of um, Iran having foreign, foreign policy tools in other countries. Um, that these are not really, instead of being committed to some sort of a general um, internationalist revolution, as some had envisaged early on, um, Iran starts to have links with groups irrespective of really um, their politics. So, I mean, not irrespective of their politics, but really with the main focus being on how they can help Iran and how, how they can be commanded from Iran. And this becomes in the, in the events of region, especially in the last 10 years, becomes sectarianized uh, to the degree that really this, the Iranian revolution had early on not been a Shia Islamist revolution in many ways. It was all about overcoming the Shia Sunni divisions. As I said, it was yeah. even overcoming the divisions outside Islam, right? But it really becomes uh, it really becomes a Shia sectarian project mm -hmm. with all the horrible implications 
that that you know that 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 can have. Yeah, and we should uh, I think bring these things a little bit forward because another major thing happens, which is the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan and of Iraq, and maybe you can just sort of bundle those up and the effects that that has, and also bring Soleimani back in and uh, explain what he was doing uh, because I, this I, I wasn't aware of this, but you know he Soleimani and, and Iran, you know. Uh, collaborate with the U.S. in in Afghanistan, right? Um, That's right. And then the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq uh, really unleashes this the the Shia Sunni conflict, uh, takes it to a whole new level, which I guess it has impacts upon Iran in terms of what you were just describing of of Iran becoming much more of a specifically Shia power. Um, so, if you could just tell us how Soleimani navigates this. So Soleimani's career really takes off here because in, in 1990, between the end of the war in 88 and 98, when he's appointed the head of Quds Force, which is in charge of external operations of the IRGC, he's, his main job is he's basically fighting the drug war in Iran and Eastern Iran, which means coming into com- contact with Afghanistan a little bit. And he has, he has some role in the Afghan policy of Iran, if you will. Um, but what happens is that at the head of the Quds Force, so... Let's go to 9-11. 9-11 happens. Um, Iran, uh, United States attacks Afghanistan. Afghanistan was harboring Taliban. Yeah? Taliban is a pre-ISIS, if you will. It's like ISIS is Taliban on steroids. The Taliban is more it's an Islamist sort of extremist group in, in, in most ways, but it also has a base of tribalism and sort of local tribalism, as ISIS becomes much more of an international group. Um, so Taliban had been a threat to Iran in many ways. Iran, in fact, had gathered soldiers on, on its border wanting to, uh, wanting to possibly fight Taliban, um, which, which hates Shia, right? Um, and uh, it's in conflict with Iran. It attacks an Iranian consulate at some point and kills some people there. Um, at any rate, in the moment of 2001, United States attacks, brings down Taliban. Iran and the United States collaborate. The Islamic Republic of Iran collaborates with the great Satan that it uh, talks about all the time, collaborates to the fullest extent possible. There are many, um, you know, my book is not the first one who's talked about this, but I give um, some interesting anecdotes. I mean, they meet secretly yeah. with the American officials, and the American officials, Ryan Crocker, who is still alive and, you know, is a good guy to talk to about this because he was the main American guy on this, um, is sort of constantly shocked by how willing Soleimani and them are to cooperate um, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, so Iran, basically, in a pragmatic way, and this is a multi-layered story, because it's the years of the reformist presidency in Iran of Khatami, it's the year of, uh, it's, it's the era of, and the discussions about change in Iran are, are, are very relevant. Iran collaborates fully with the United States in Afghanistan against Taliban. They are the you know, collaboration takes many forms, but again, two full military collaboration, not open, but full. And in the, in the official history of Islamic Republic, this is also admitted to. No one, no one hides this, yeah? So, uh, but of course, in 2003, in January 2000, sorry, 2002, in January 2002, Bush gives a speech uh, in his estate of union, in his first estate of union. He calls Iran as part of the axis of evil. And, you know, Ryan Crocker and others say this is the one word in a speech change history. I find that a little silly to say one word in the speech because it wasn't about the speech, of course. It was about the general direction of Bush's, Bush's government who decides that they're going to, you know, they want to bring down Iran. And this is a new conservative era, of course, that they want to they bring Iran after Iraq 
potentially anyway. At any rate, their global democracy promotion uh, policy means that they want to bring down the regime in Iran after they bring down the regime in Iraq. So they, in 2003, they attack Iraq one more time. Iran is basically on the same side as the U.S. Guess what? U.S. just brought down their biggest rival, Saddam Hussein, mm-hmm. the guy who had killed Soleimani's comrades. So what's there not to like? Um, they bring, which they people bring pointed out at the time, of course, that 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 weakening Saddam would uh, would strengthen Iran, which was, uh, you know, I mean, it was just many, many one of the many ways, I guess, in which uh, the U.S. invasion of Iraq was so contradictory and and so damaging for the U.S. itself. I mean, even just on its own terms. Exactly. I mean, um, I mean that it's it's fascinating. I'd really wonder how people would discuss them fifty years. I want to actually study that period a bit more about the, the invasion of Iraq because. Um, you know, I think that you know there's sort of. Anyways, let's not get into Iraq. I'm I'm sure you've you've done you've done episodes. You, you can do episodes. Now. Okay, but in terms of Soleimani, yes. So, in the aftermath of the fall of Soleimani, of the fall of Saddam in Iraq, Soleimani and his men energetically intervene in Iraq. They start building up their forces, and this is really Soleimani's moment of excellence, if you will, because he is able to build a network of you know protecting the Shia shrines in Iraq. So Shia, the most important shrines of the Shia are in Iraq. Uh, the problem every time you want to talk about Iran and Iraq is that you have to sort of talk about thousand years of history of, of Sunni and Shia. But they, in a nutshell, the Shia shrines are in Iraq. So Iraq is important as a train. So he is able to weave together these important religious ceremonies and the population in Iraq to Shia politics in Iraq. He's able to build really good militia forces in Iraq um, to overcome the very rowdy scene of Shia politics. A lot of Shia leaders were in Iran during the years of Saddam, right? Yet they were exiled. Um, but Soleimani is able to unite them together in different ways to build up new groups that are very technologically impressive also, right? This is, this is an important part of the story. It, you know, in poli- in poli- this is my general theory as the, of the guy being a soldier, right? So he is able to really build forces that more than anything um, they are technologically impressive. So it's not just you know, you can talk the talk, but you know, they're also able to do things that um, that a lot of militias were not able to. And the sectarian bloodbath, really, and the sectarian, the the um, really the birth of this sectarian moment and its its further entrenchment really happens in Iraq because on the, on the Iranian side, of course, you have Soleimani and them relying on the on the Shia side. It's starting to speak of the Shia crescent and things like that. And on the other side, of course, you have the Al-Qaeda able to rise itself up in Iraq, relying on the demobilized soldiers and the forces of the Ba'ath army, which, as we know, become important in building up the ISIS. And really, Al-Qaeda goes to another extreme here um, in Iraq and its forces. And the, the person of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, a Jordanian who comes to Iraq and is able to really build ferocious Sunni forces in a, in a sense that even Al-Qaeda leaders get scared basically and cut him off ultimately, right? Um, yeah, so this is the moment. In the, in, the, in, the, in the fields of Iraq, as the state collapses after the Iraqi invasion, um, you have the formation of this sectarian logic on both sides, of, of Iran yeah. pushing its forces and of Al-Qaeda extremists and sort of mm. Sunni extremists really driving this um, to a higher level and creating the tragedy um, that we have um, that, that we have had to this day. So, 
I guess this sweeps us up to the present, to discussing the um, Syrian civil war, the rise and fall of ISIS. And I know one of the um, one of the themes that was raised around the time of the assassination of Soleimani was the um, the fact that he had played such an or it was claimed at least that he had played such an important role in helping to defeat ISIS. Um, in helping to organize the um, militias, particularly the Shia militias of the Iraqi state, who are the only effective military force in Iraq after the army disintegrated with the emergence of ISIS. And I wondered how accurate that picture is based on your, on your book, on your research. Was How important was he to, um, well, first of all, I suppose, to defeating ISIS? And second, um, how important was he in saving the regime of Bashar al-Assad in um, in Syria after the fa after the Syrian uprising and for a while it seemed as if um it seemed as if the you know the regime would fall the Assad regime would fall in Syria too how important was um, was Soleimani to those two events I think he was very important to both of them there's no exaggeration here he was important in defeating but there are qualifications which I'll make in a second but he was very important to defeating ISIS in Iraq he, as I said, he was an able military commander. He was able to really organize a lot of people. You know, talk to the, forget the Shia Islamists, talk to the Kurds, the, the, the leaders of, left-wing leaders of Kurdish militias in Iraq. I speak highly of, of Soleimani, those of the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, or the smallest, uh, smaller uh, Kurdistan Social Democratic Party, I think it's called, or Socialist Democratic Party. Um, you know, they spoke positively of Soleimani as a very able military commander who, who, brought, who came in who was fearless, who was always on the scene. I mean, this is the thing about this guy. He likes to be there, right? And he really, you know, he had breakfast in Tehran, lunch in Beirut, dinner in Damascus. I mean, this was a, you know, he moved around the line. This is how he was able to build his forces. So he was definitely milit militarily impressive in defeating ISIS. In, and because he had this multinational army, ISIS, as we know, was present in both Syria and Iraq, right? Yeah. So Soleimani was able to do the same effectively. And of course, he also organized volunteers from Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran and took them, built a multinational Shia army that was able to fight ISIS and, and had an important role in defeating it. But uh, of course, the support of the West, American airstrikes were also indispensable, yeah. as was the religious fatwa of Ayatollah Sistani, um, the Shia cleric in Iraq. But, you know, to, to put it basically, Soleimani was very important, but so was the West and the American-led coalition. And the fact that these Iraqis mobilized and fought. Soleimani was important because he was able to do a good job of commanding and good job of sort of military leadership. Same in Syria, Soleimani was key into defeating, to, to winning the civil war for Assad, basically. Because, mm -hmm. A, again, he was militarily impressive. B, he was able to bring Hezbollah in in a very serious way. And he even had some role, and this is something that when the declassification happens in the 30 years from now and we'll know better, or, yeah, I mean, I don't know how Russia will ever declassify, but basically he had an important role in bringing Russia. He met Putin in Moscow by all accounts of people that I talked to on the Russian side. He impressed Putin. Like Putin was impressed with this guy, especially as opposed to Assad, which Putin didn't hold in high opinion. And, you know, he... I think Putin was convinced that if Soleimani and his men are on the ground, you know, we can we can we can stage an intervention, uh, you know, with with a more confident base. So he was important in both of yeah. these these efforts. He's of course responsible for the war crimes and uh, committed by Assad and, and the killing of his own population. And the thing that I will say about the ISIS part, though, is that 
okay, so he was responsible, but the rise of ISIS itself was partially a result of sectarian Shia policies that Soleimani had also supported prior to that. I.e., why is it that the Sunni population of northern Iraq would, I mean, ISIS wouldn't come to power without some support from the Sunni population, right? It's an uncomfortable fact in truth, but it is. They're not just a bunch of gangsters from like Paris. Um, some of them are, but, mm-hmm. um, but they have local support. Part of this is because sectarian policies of Nuri Maliki, prime minister of Iraq, which Bush had proclaimed as a new great new guy for Iraq, uh, but he really was much more led by Soleimani than by anybody else. Uh, you know, these sectarian policies had a role in um, in sidelining the Sunnis in Iraq and making possible. And who says this? You don't want to take the word of Arash Azizi? The people of the intelligence ministry in Iran said this. Mm-hmm. Intel- the leaked files from intelligence ministry in Iran showed that they were worried that Soleimani's brutal policies and sectarian policies will, will, will endanger the region mm-hmm. in this sense. So he was, he was important in defeating ISIS, but his policies and the policies he led had also had a role in the first place. In for ISIS to come to place. So we've talked about um, we talked about the Iran-Iraq war. Um, we talked about the invasion of Lebanon. Um, we've talked about the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. We've talked about the U.S. invasion of Iraq. We've talked about the Syrian civil war. Um, and so the strange thing, I guess, was given. I mean, so uh, his life, and also it gives a sense of just how violent and bloody the history of the region have been. Um, the one thing which everyone expected, particularly on the left, I think, was war after the assassination of Soleimani. So the belief was that we were on the brink of war, possibly a third world war. I don't know um, how the you know how the jump was from a war between the U.S. and Iran to a third world war, but there was a lot of alarmism um, and a widespread belief that the militarism and saber rattling of the Trump administration, its hostility to Iran. Um, would inevitably lead this way following the assassination. And so, but cutting against expectations, that didn't happen. So I wondered if you could tell us a bit about how that game of brinkmanship played out, um, particularly from the Iranian perspective, as you read it. Um, Why was there no war with the US when everyone was expecting it? I mean, people were, you know, I mean, I remember people were absolutely adamant that we were a few weeks away from another major conflict in the Middle East that would have been worse, in fact, than the war with Iraq? I mean, I was, first I would say that the brinkmanship is, to a degree, what led to Soleimani's death, because the last couple of years of his life, he really became overconfident. The, you know, to use the word of Ryan Crocker, I like to have the shadow commander came out of the shadows, because um, really he posted, he had a big social media presence. He tweet replied to Donald Trump with a yeah. Game of Thrones <laughs> yeah. poster. Which is, uh, you know, which is very 2019. The tits, the tits and dragons show being tweeted by an Islamist commander. That was really something. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um, and the HBO condemned Trump's use. Um, he was silent on Soleimani's use as far as I know. But uh, anyways, um, so, you know, Soleimani brinkmanship really, and brinkmanship against Trump, right? You don't, you know, this is not a guy you really want to do brinkmanship with. So he said they can't do anything. Well, they killed him at the end. Um you know, so this was this was the dangerous policy of Brinkmanship that he had. He did have some role in, um, uh, and it costed him his life at the end of the day. Now, so I think it was very puzzle for a war to break up. So I don't think at all people were alarmist for for no reason. Now I'll say this: I think both you, both Khamenei and Trump are people who didn't want a war. Okay, so I agree there. 
unlike Bush, you know, George W. Bush, they, Trump didn't want a war. Khamenei definitely didn't want a war. The mullahs of Iran, they don't want a war because they know they can't win a war. So, but the wars break out often be, not because either sides want them, but because they become inevitable by the course of events. And I think it was very possible that one, you know, that, uh, that, a, that a broader war, I'm not sure about the world war tree, but a broader war would have, would have broken out um, uh, had, had the course of events gone in a certain way. Why it didn't? And here's, here's what I'll say. I think it was actually Ayatollah Khamenei's, um, if I may say, wisdom in a sense. I'll explain to you what I mean. So Trump kills Soleimani on January 3rd. Khamenei promises a hard revenge. The hard revenge was praised domestically and uh, even by Khamenei's opponents as being right, hitting right the sweet spot that avoided the war because he rained missiles on a, on a base in Iraq, a U.S. base. They call it a U.S. base, but really it's a base that includes U.S. forces, right? Because it was an Iraqi base, um, Ain al-Assad, that doesn't kill anyone, but it's still a big spectacular event. So he could have said that he did a... Um, he did a he did retaliate, but no one uh, died on the U.S. side, so they could have stepped down. I have to say, it wasn't so wise when you remember that it also killed 176 passengers on the Ukrainian airline that night, who was yeah. mistakenly shot by, by not one, but two missiles of the IRGC. And uh, it's a good reminder of, um, you know, I said at the time that Khamenei was careful enough not to hurt a single American soldier, but not careful not to kill 176 People, most of whom were his own citizens. It's own his own citizens. Yeah. Um, so, so I think the war was very possible. I think if Ham, you know, if if the IRGC, and this is important, I think it because it is now today as well. The reality is Trump doesn't want a war. Of course, he doesn't want a war. He wants a deal, you know, and to continue drinking eight diet cokes a day. I mean, he's not exactly a wartime, you know, commander in any sense. And Khamenei yeah. doesn't want a war because he's a wise guy. I mean, Khamenei. I love what Vali Nasr once said in a debate. You know, there was this guy going on and on about how the Islamist leaders in Iran are you know, suicidal maniacs with martyrdom complex. And Vali Nasr said, you know, you don't get to be 80, 90 years old if you if you're have a martyrdom complex. These guys, these old men ruling Iran, they're very prude in this sense. They're, they know exactly how to, um, you know, they're good tacticians in many senses, right? They're able to continue. This is the dangerous thing about them actually that they've been able to pragmatically prolong their tyrannical rule um, by agreeing with America but buying arms from Israel when it suited their interests as they did in the 1980s there's no line they wouldn't cross in order to um, buttress their survival but a war is puzzled because you have many military forces now in the Persian Gulf and an incident can lead to another incident can lead to another incident right yeah if, if Iranian missiles say kill 10 American soldiers can any American president not attack or not order an attack back? And if they do order an attack back, will Hezbollah not attack Israel? Will not? Will you know? Will, would they not try to rain missiles on Haifa or something? And then, so it's. I think it's very positive. I think it's not wrong to be worried, um, and one should do all that one could to prevent a military conflagration between Iran and the United States in the region, which would be of devastating consequences from every way humanitarian political social it would it would make iraq war look like a walk in the park really um so i think that that is important so i guess to wrap it up we've got uh, two questions um 
how damaging then you mentioned at the beginning that um he was uh, absolutely crude you can see that he was in fact a key figure for um the iranian regime um and you can see this by virtue of his absence so i wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about how um how important um his losses to the iranian regime and given what you started with um when you said you didn't think the regime would survive the protests and revolts of the last few years since we last had you on um would you be willing at this point to give a timeline for the for how long the mullahs might still stay in charge um let me just say i didn't i didn't say that i didn't think the regime wouldn't last two years since january 2018 i think that was a Previous conversation, I said when I was young and left, you know, had to leave Iran in 2008, I didn't think it would survive. I misunderstood. I, misunderstood. <laughs> I was okay. actually no, thinking, I was actually thinking when you said that, I don't remember you saying that when you, when you came <laughs> on the podcast, but so I guess, so fine. Yeah. 2008, you didn't think it would survive. It survived. Would you be willing to put an expiry date on it at this point, older and wiser? <laughs> Definitely. Um, you know, when I was a kid and the revolution broke out in Iran in 2009, the Russian movement, I used to just not, I didn't want to pay rent and stuff anymore. I lived in Malaysia at the time because I was like, the regime would be down. I have to, I wouldn't commit to a rent contract for six months because I was, the regime would be down and I would have to go back to Iran. Um, well, it didn't quite work out that way. Um, but to, to answer both of your questions, first of all, in, since Soleimani's assassination in January in 2020, so it's been, what, eight months? Um, the, so... First of all, his shoes have been very hard to fill because as a, this guy spoke great Arabic, he moved, he moved around the region, he had a charismatic link. Ismail Qani, the guy who is his replacement, is nothing like that. He's not charismatic, doesn't speak Arabic very well. His portfolio has really been taking care of Eastern Iran. So they've lost a great guy here and they've, they haven't been able to replace him. But more importantly, perhaps, or at least as importantly, is that, of course, Iranian coffers are empty. Right, the Iranian coffers are empty, um, and they don't have money to pay to all these forces. And in Iraq, which is a most important perhaps scene here, now we, we don't have time to go country by country. So let me just mention something quickly about Iraq. Iraq now, so since October last year, in both Iraq and Lebanon, you had popular movements that focused really on two things: first, effective, competent government and opposition to Iranian intervention via its Shia forces, right? Put Lebanon to a side, different program. I'm actually, I know you are discussing Lebanon soon, so I wouldn't speak on that. But in Iraq, came out today, the movement... Ah, <laughs> uh, beautiful, beautiful. So in Iraq, the movement led to the downfall of the Adel Abdul Mahdi, the communist-turned-Shia prime minister that I talked about before. And he was, after certain events, after a couple of candidates were rejected, Anyways, he was the Prime Minister of Iraq is now Mustafa Kazemi, the guy who I believe, and this is, you will see how, how history will test my belief or not. I believe this is a man who wants to make Iraq independent. I think he, his goal is to, he does not want an Iraq that is, that is reliant on Iran as much as it is. So not only Iran doesn't have money, not only it doesn't have Soleimani, it now faces a man an honorable independent politician who is the prime minister of Iraq and who is fighting to make his country genuinely independent of Iran, to have good links with Saudi Arabia also, that Iraq now has different migrations with, and with the rest of the Arab world and with Iran, but to limit the influence of, to end the days in which Qasem Soleimani would decide who will sit in the prime ministerial office 
in Baghdad, which, which was the days um, in the last 10 years or so. Um, he wants to end that. So this is why Iran will, th this is why Iran will face uh, a lot of problems wanting to continue its, uh, its influence in the region. And, and I'll end with saying to, to your last question, um, which is related to this, of course. Now, it's a, not a question that is analytical for me alone. My grandfather passed away a couple of years ago without me being able to go see him. This is the fate of uh, hundreds of thousands of Iranians, really, or tens of thousands at least, who are not able to visit their homeland, who are also um, even, uh, and of course, for millions who live there, are unhappy that this uh, tyrannical um, backward regime has been able to dominate their lives, a regime that has shown untold brutalities, untold uh, crimes against these people. So it's never for me easy to um, just predict when it would come down. I, will, I can't wait for the day when we can send this regime to the dustbin of history, and I will uh, definitely spend all my life fighting for this goal. Um, but in terms of predictions, I think, you know, a lot depends on, on, on the events to come. Of course, a lot depends on what happens in the U.S. presidential elections in three months. But ultimately, I think the Islamic Republic of Iran is a failed project that will fall. It will not last beyond. Let's, let me, I'm going to put a decade on it <laughs> and the maximum, okay? I don't think it will last um, beyond the decade because it has failed in all its own promises. It promised to create an Islamic egalitarian society in which people will be spiritual and kind to each other. It has instead created a corrupt rule of men with, with guns who are happy to go on sex tourist trips um, while, while um, limiting the most basic expressions of of sexuality in their own country just to show the hypocritical nature is that I'm saying this. This is not a regime of true devout Muslims um, who really have a sort of social conservative agenda. It's a regime of corruption, of, um, um, of hypocrisy, and of failed, and the failed results for the Iranian people who, who by and large believe they could do better than this. I think vast majority of Iranians, they might have a strategic con sort of questions about what will come after the regime. But I think by and large, they believe we could do better than this. We could do better than having a country that is so isolated on the world stage, that kills its opponents abroad, that puts uh, young women on, on jail because they appeared in an Instagram dance video, that, uh, you know, that forces half of its population to wear uh, the hijab on the streets, forces this Northern woman. They believe they could do better than this. So ultimately, I believe... The, the failed nature of this historical project means that it cannot last long in, in this form. Now, what would mm. the next form be is a different question of what exactly it, this form would be. But I think it's not far-fetched to say that this Islamic Republic, as it currently stands, uh, will, not, uh, will not last long. Well, that's a really strong place to finish what has been a wonderful yeah. and really enlightening and informative chat with you, Arash. Uh, that was brilliant. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll definitely have to leave it a lot less time than we left it uh, between your first yeah, and second thanks. appearances until your third one. Thanks so thank much for coming so back on, Arash. That was really great. Um, thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. I love your shows. And I really thank you for keeping up. Uh, it, it always bothers me the fact that, you know, we discuss um, 
you know, people know a lot about the, you know, we read a lot, we listen to a lot of things, but the state of world politics sort of usually gets a backseat, you know, less about other countries than, you know, we know about, uh, you know, pop culture here or like, you know, it's a Senate race in, in Maine or something. So it's great. Um, it's great. It's great that you have a show dedicated to, to world politics. Thank you very much. For having oh, that's me great on. to hear, man. Thank you. Thank you.